0: Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with my mom, Sharon Lisco. For the past 13 years, she has worked as a nurse at a neonatal intensive care unit at an Anchorage hospital. While she worked as a nurse, she continued her education and eventually moved to a clinical nurse specialist position. To her, it's more than a job. It's a calling and a privilege to be welcomed into those sacred places of tragedy and happiness. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com crude Crude Magazine, and pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolf, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers your money, and your support make these conversations possible. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Sharon Liska. From owning a gym in the 80s to being a stockbroker in the 90s, her working life has been a series of careers, many of which have been in male-dominated professions. To be successful in that atmosphere, she had to navigate the sexism and male egos of the time which, a lot of the time, meant having to temper her intelligence. From 1989 to 2007, she was an integral part of Borderline Alaska Snow and Skate. Borderline was founded by my dad, Scott Liska, and his brother, Jay Liska, in 1989. My mom's job was damage control. Whenever there was trouble with the business or my dad had personal issues, she came to the rescue. She was routinely responsible for keeping track of and contributing to the financials of the business even when it took precedence over her family. She says that to create a successful business, everything takes a backseat, and that a business owns you. You don't own that business. So here she is, Sharon Liska. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up.
1: Crude Conversations. Listen
2: more, then you talk. Go to work! I can hear me. You can hear you? I can hear me. Can you hear me?
0: I can hear you perfectly. I like there's a hair
2: right on here. On the mic? <laughs> <laughs> Every time I talked or breathed through my nose, it was going...
0: You know we're recording now?
2: Oh, awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we already established that you can hear me.
2: Yeah, I can hear you. That yeah. was
0: my first question, is if you can hear me.
2: Yeah, that was your first. That was easy. That yeah, was right. Easy. Yeah, See? yeah. I and you were it. nervous. I yeah.
0: You know, to tell you the truth, I was a little nervous too.
2: Yeah. What's funny about that is I don't get nervous. I mean, I have talked in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, you know, I do talks um, with, you know, hundreds of nurses listening to me, and I don't get nervous. Mm-hmm. I, it's like I like playing to the crowd. You know what I mean? Um, and I can tell if I'm losing them by looking at, you know, their faces or if they're interested or whatever. Uh, and I was more nervous about doing this than I was doing a talk in front of um, my nurses.
0: Well, I don't think that there's any, like, correct preparation for something like this. Yeah. I mean, I'm the one that, that that's preparing. And yeah. I think that that's, that's a, maybe a little off-putting sometimes until, like, I talk to certain people and they're like, oh, yeah, that was mellow. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's just a conversation.
2: Yeah. I kind of pick up on that. I've listened. I mean, I listen to all your podcasts um, and I listen, I hear it more. I heard that, by the way. My burp. It was, <laughs> it was more like the progression of it coming up your esophagus. <laughs> um, I've heard that in some of the people that you've interviewed that I could tell, you know, just by how fast they talked at the beginning or. Their breathing was faster. You could pick up on it, that they would be a little bit nervous in the beginning. But as, as it went on, they got calmer. That's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So as I was writing questions for you, Mom. Yes. I realized what a career-oriented person you are and have been your whole life. Not in a bad way. I see that look. <laughs> and I guess I already knew that. But to write it down and meditate on it is something totally different. Why do you think you've been so focused on careers your whole life?
2: Do you know, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I remember from the time that I first started working back um, when I was like 13, 14 years old. And I started working at Sears Portrait Studio in the Sears Mall. Um, here in Anchorage. Here in Anchorage, yeah. Um that I always felt that um, women in positions of um, wh- number one, women were accepted to be in positions that were um, carved out for women to be in. So it was okay for me to go in as a young woman, a young girl, young woman, adolescent, whatever, and be a photographer's assistant there. But there was a guy who was the photographer and I thought he didn't connect with the people that came in and the babies hated him. I mean, they they cried and, you know, they were, anyways, it was very chaotic. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was interesting to me that even though he didn't really have a rapport, I did not ever see a rapport that he would settle, set with these people coming in. But that because he was the the photographer, everybody else was secondary to whatever he wanted to do or what he thought. Mm-hmm. And even at that age, I thought, well, that's kind of bullshit. I mean, wouldn't you use your strongest person in the room that had a natural rapport with these babies that could make them laugh and make the, you know, the parents feel at ease or whatever? So I think I caught on to that at a pretty young age. Um, and then even when I started work at EF Hutton, I went in there and interviewed to be a um, um, to be what they called a rookie. I wanted to them to train me to work with the market. Mm-hmm. And they had two female um, brokers at that time. Um, one of them was a little bit of a kook. And the thing is is if you were attractive, and if you were a woman, you were not necessarily thought to be smart, really. Okay. And that's so I think from from that very young age, um in you know my professional life, so I would have been about nineteen or twenty when I started working at Eve Hutton mm-hmm. I knew I had to play a part and and I knew that I had to um act a certain way. get what I wanted. And I always considered myself very intelligent, and I always felt like I had to dumb myself down to be accepted into, into places and spaces that I wanted to
0: get to. Did you ever at any point think that after I get to a certain point, I won't have to dumb myself down anymore?
2: I did. It, but it, I, I don't know if it, it worked that way. And I feel that it still doesn't necessarily work that way in today's world. And don't get me wrong. You know, I know it, it's been 100 years since women finally got the right to vote, which I think that's a bunch of horseshit, too. <laughs> right?
0: I don't know. Yeah, it I, I, is. I, I, this, you're the one talking. Women
2: have only been voting for 100 years.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, Hello. no, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's right? ridiculous. Yeah. It's
2: ridiculous. And even into the 1970s a man could beat his wife to death. To death, kill her, and it was not illegal. Did you know that?
0: I possibly I I possibly knew that. So is that where the um rule of thumb comes from with the We might have to look that up.
2: It, it, I just remember being super aware of that as um a young girl growing up even in the early 80s. I was very aware that I knew I was intelligent and I knew I was I caught on to things really fast mm-hmm. um and I had you know really good intuition about things but I could not always let people know that because it was not attractive for a woman to be overly smart or overly aggressive mm-hmm. and that's what they considered an A type personality female is they considered her to be aggressive?
0: Do you remember at what point things started to shift? You know, at least for you, for, from your perspective.
2: For for me, um, you know, I I had a very successful career once I got to Wedbush Morgan. I was I was the only female broker in that office.
0: Stockbroker, right? Stockbroker, yeah,
2: yeah. And you know that that too was an interesting. Play of events because I went from E. F. Hutton. E. F. Hutton would not ever put me in a position as a as a rookie, whereas uh, Wedbush Morgan would. But they told me that I had to start as a sales assistant first, and they would start. I remember this so very clearly. So they would start me as a sales assistant so I could prove that I could actually do what I thought I could do. You mm-hmm. know, I'm a lifelong Alaskan. I've watched the shifts in the markets up here, you know, for years. At that point. And they started me at um, 1200 bucks a month, no commission, just a flat 1200 bucks a month. Whereas literally the same week I was hired, another guy who shares the same birthday with me mm-hmm. was hired. And he was hired with a um, salary of $3,000 a month base plus commission. No experience whatsoever, never had worked in a brokerage firm, but he had a penis and I did not. Mm-hmm. And that would have been in uh, 1987.
0: So that career, being a stockbroker, is notorious, like you said, for being a boys club. What was it like being a woman in that atmosphere?
2: <laughs> well, you know, I thrived in that atmosphere. Number one, because they always underestimated me. And and that was fine with me. I also had um, a boss who I still am... Uh, friendly with now and I still think very highly of him. His name is Alan Johnston
1: mm-hmm.
2: who he believed in with in me. he was just playing within, you know the realms of the game that he was, you know, he was handed right mm-hmm. that's just the way things were done at that time um, but he was very encouraging and um he allowed me to really grow in the areas that i that I was strong in and um, he really supported, really anything that i felt passionately or strong about and and he was very supportive and and i still really admire him for and and, and grateful to him for believing in me like that mm-hmm. but i remember feeling a shift happen probably two or three years into my career there that i was like i'm smarter than most of you guys i'm better <laughs> at figuring this shit out uh-huh. Um, I I was very good at taking um, down blocks of bonds, and instead of just buying and selling them on the open market, and put my own spread into them so that my clients would get a better a better deal, and you know, plus I'd have my own commission locked in there. I had rules that I would go by that I had to trade within those rules. Or I wouldn't do it for my clients. They, you know, I felt a huge um, responsibility to them. Mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't a game of um, how much money I can make and am I going to get rich and is this going to, you know, put me in the realms of, you know, hanging out with the richest people in town. It was more, you know, what kind of job can I do for these people, and you know, I just wanted to do the very best that I could.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I remember going back to kind of your rules that you set for yourself that, and you must have told me this when I was an adult because it it stuck with me. I I, I wouldn't have remembered it as a kid if you told me, but you said that you were very particular about the bonds, if I'm getting that language correctly, that you would sell to your clients because you didn't want them to be like junk bonds, right?
2: Oh, yeah. No. Mm -mm. Nope. I was very specific. I wouldn't buy anything under a triple B rating. I would check the you know the history of the issuing agencies. i mean there's there's a whole process that goes on behind the creation of bonds, the rating of bonds,
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, what ends up being a good investment, what can end up looking like a good investment? But once they start trading, they fall flat, right on the markets, and then they end up not having any kind of a secondary market to be able to trade in or out of it. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting to me. I, I did have just a knack of being able to look at things within those very clear parameters and say, yes, I'll do this. But no, I'm not going to go in. And because I had there in, in any brokerage firm, you have a lot of pressure to take down X amount of of shares or bonds from new underwritings that come through that you're... Um, that your company is underwriting or that has taken down for the brokers that work there. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would do it mainly because the the company would put, you know, additional price spreads in it so that your, your commission was bigger or just different things that would happen that they'd build into it more for the commission side than the performance side. And again, I, I felt that was very manipulative and mm-hmm. greedy. Because if I do a good job and you make money, you're going to remember me as being an honest person and further down the road, I'm the one that you're going to be referring people back to because I'm honest and I did the best I could for you.
0: I remember at one point you mailed me, you mailed yourself a, a book full of like, what was that? You remember that? It was like stocks and bonds and it was like a, a thin, like rectangular shaped book. And I remember getting it in the mail and being so excited to get mail, but I was so bummed. <laughs> and to this day, I feel so bad about it because you were like, honey, why don't you check the mail? You know, and I checked the mail and what I thought it was, was my Fox 4 Kid Club card. And and I because what you had to do to get that card, you remember Fox 4, right? Yeah, like yeah. with uh, Kitty Fox yeah. and, you know, Channel 4. Uh, with cartoons and everything. And so, I sent my photo in, and I filled out this little, like, biography, and then they'd send you back this laminated, like, picture card, right? Yeah. And so, I was waiting for that for, like, weeks. But I think that I probably mailed it wrong, is what happened. But I kept checking the mail, and I don't think that you were aware of the fact that I was waiting for this card, And so, you sent me that just thinking you were doing something sweet, maybe something that we could bond over, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I remember like just just being so crushed.
2: That's so funny. (laughs) I had um, started um, savings accounts for you and Colton and Kiana um, from the time you were very young. So, what I had sent you was a kit so you could start understanding the basics of investing. Yeah. That's what that was.
0: I should have read it and kept it. (laughs) So So I understood it better than I do now.
2: Well, what was interesting is that, um, so I started saving all your permanent funds, yours, um, Colton's and Kiana's. And then on top of the permanent funds, I would put $100 a month into your accounts from the time you guys were just little before Mm -hmm. you were even in school. I think you were maybe three when I started it. And so Colton, I think I actually started both of yours at the same time. I bought Disney stock. And little by little, I just, you know, I would just manage those. And neither, and I I guess the reason I was just so proud of it is over those years, I invested and saved enough money that put you through college, that's put Colton through college. uh, And now, Kiana, by the grace of God, will, (laughs) (laughs) fingers crossed, (laughs) will make it through college. And none of you have had to have any student loans. Which
0: has been awesome. Which is,
2: that's amazing. It really is,
0: yeah. Especially when you hear all of this uh, talk about college debt and the fact that to go to college and then graduate college with no debt is really just like unbelievable. It's
2: unbelievable, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, I, and the reason, you know, that I felt so strongly about that, I felt very strongly that all three of you, I wanted you to go to college, is that I always wanted to go to college. Mm -hmm. But it was told to me at a very young age that I was attractive enough, I didn't need to go to college.
0: Who told you that? My mother. (laughs) (laughs) You knew I knew the answer, huh? I knew you did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she told me I I never had to worry about going to college uh, because I was attractive and I'd just marry somebody who'd just take care of me. And
0: how old were you when you... Because you went to college when you were younger, but you went back to college Mm -hmm. when you were a little older.
2: Right. I started when um, I went to Oklahoma. And then that's where your dad is from. That's where my dad is from, yeah. Um, And of course, you know, things were chaotic down there because of, you know, the whole family dysfunction pieces. Um, And I ended up, you know, leaving there and coming back up here and not really, I, you know, I take a couple of classes at UAA here and there and, you know, tried to start putting that together. But it's really difficult once you have children and you have, you know, your dad had businesses and Mm -hmm. there was just always, so much busyness, and somebody had to be, you know, the the stable wage earner, mm-hmm. and that had to be me for many years.
0: And so, when you went back to college, what did you go for?
2: When I went back, I was going to go ahead and go back and um, finish my business degree um, with a focus in economics, because uh, that's what I'd done my entire adult life.
0: You were familiar with it.
2: I was familiar with it, and I knew that if I had that degree, there were other things that would it would open the doors for me to be involved with my experience with the degree. It would open other doors for me in in the brokerage industry. Mm-hmm. But I uh, went to I, and actually I was taking some classes. I met this girl. Her name's Lene, and she and I had become friendly in a couple of the classes that we had taken together. And she asked me if I would go sit at a um at an introduction to nursing. And I, I remember telling her, gross. <laughs> Why yes. do you want to do that? Ew. Um <laughs> Seriously, because like, you know, it... Well, so, and, and you take it back just a little bit, what I was thinking I was doing, because after you had your accident...
0: Me and dad's car accident.
2: Yeah, you and your dad's car accident. And, you know, when I w- went down to Loma Linda and that whole experience there and... Your recovery and um I just remember thinking, you know, and and praying when we were down there, you know, Lord, please heal my son and I'll use my talent for whatever it is you want me to do. Mm -hmm. I'll do whatever it is And, and I'll be watching for your sign. And I mean I prayed and I prayed and I prayed, especially, you know, those first few days, those first you know, week or so when you were in such, you know, poor condition and they didn't know what your prognosis was. At the time, I didn't know the first thing about medicine. I just know that I was trying to figure this stuff out, and they wanted to give you a blood um, transfusion, and I didn't want you to have dirty California blood. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, And I mean that in the nicest way. I wanted them to give you my blood. And they said that I'd have to, they could do that, but you know, I'd have to go in and they'd have to test it, and make sure that it com- was compatible with your...
0: Blood. I just thought we were getting all sweet here for a second, all <laughs> sentimental. And then you say something like
2: that. <laughs> but it was fear. It wasn't even about California. It was just fear.
0: Because you didn't know.
2: I had no idea. And I was so afraid to make the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. And so I called your pediatrician back here in Alaska and talked to Dr. Ryan. Uh-huh. And I asked him, I said, can you tell me what to do? And he said, you know, here he, I'm asking this Alaskan pediatrician to tell me your mother what to do over all of these specialists at Loma Linda mm-hmm. because I trusted him and I didn't know them from Adam, mm-hmm. you know. So he told me to trust them but that there were some things they could do for you to, you know, naturally get your red blood counts up and so on and so forth and you didn't have to have a transfusion. Um and you know things moved along and Your dad stayed down there with you because I had to get back to take care of the business and your brother and sister. But it was very much on my mind that I knew that um, there was going to be a change. And what I thought it would be, would be to set up like, you know, like a mother and children's home here to do maybe fundraising and help set up support services for women and children here or for trafficked people because even back then, you know, you were hearing about um this this growing phenomenon of people being trafficked.
0: Sex trafficking? Yes. Okay.
2: So I thought, you know, that's where the Lord's gonna use me. He's gonna say, hey, you know, you're we're gonna take your connections and your knowledge around money and building things. And, you know, I, I thought that's what it was going to be. So that's when I went back to school, that's what I was doing. So when Lene Said, hey, you want to come and sit in on this mm-hmm. introduction to nursing? It was the farthest thing from my mind. Mm-hmm. But I went into that introduction with her and I walked out of there knowing I was going to switch my major.
0: Do you remember what that introduction, like what happened during that lecture?
2: Well, I think it was the culmination because first of all, the nurses that took care of you at Loma Linda, the very first day I walked into your room Mm-hmm. And I was scared to death to touch you. You were in buck's traction for your leg. And what is that? It's um, it's like a splint that pulls your leg to keep it in um, position until they can get in there and put a the rod and the cast on it.
0: Because my femur was your, broken. Your
2: femur was broken. You had tubes. And I didn't know what they were, but you were on a ventilator. Uh, they had a feeding tube down your throat. All these machines were around you, breathing for you. And pumping fluids in and we had a, you know, a a Foley, a pee bag. Mm. And I was scared to death to touch you. And um, your nurse walked over to me very quietly and she, you know, took me by my elbow and your dad was in there and his hands were still wrapped with um, paper towels because he was afraid to leave you before I got there. And his hands were wrapped in
0: paper towels because.
2: (laughs) Because he had punched the um the windshield and broke it to get it away from you trying to get you out of the car mm-hmm. so both of his um knuckles on both hands were were like all chewed up like hamburger they were all bleeding but mm-hmm. he he didn't want to leave to have them take care of it cuz he had a hard time finding you um because any that's a whole other story, but they, yeah, yeah, you know, they had taken you in the ambulance and basically told him he had to hitchhike because you were right on the San Bernardino boundary and that you had to go to Loma Linda, but you know, they didn't have room for him in the helicopter, mm-hmm. so he was hitchhiking, bleeding, he had a he was bleeding from his forehead too because he'd hit the windshield. Um, but he'd refused medical, um, intervention because he was just trying to follow you wherever they were taking you. Mm-hmm. So once he found you, cause you had been checked into La Melinda as a John Doe, cause they didn't have your name. Mm-hmm. They checked you in as John Doe. So once your dad found you, he was afraid to leave you. So when I walked in the room, I see him over there looking ho- like a hot mess and you with, you know, all this stuff. And the nurse walked over to me and she took me by my elbow and she said, Come on in. She said, He can hear you and he needs to hear your voice. And she said, Talk to him as if you're just talking to him, you know, in a day after school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was really tough. But in that moment, when I went to that nursing introduction, there were a couple of ladies that talked about the reason they had gone into nursing. And each one of them saw it as a calling or a mission. It was their mission in life. And I just knew once I walked out of there that the Lord was calling me into nursing. I didn't know exactly where that was going to lead or what that was going to end up looking like, Mm -hmm. Um, but I had no doubt that was exactly what I was supposed to do.
0: And to add some context to this, because I'm sure people listening, they don't know about the car accident, what Dad and I were doing was driving to Mammoth Lakes, California for nationals for snowboarding. And we were hit head-on by a pickup while the pickup was trying to pass a semi. And so the doctors, if I, if I remember correctly, said that it was equivalent to running into a brick wall going 160. Right. And so what we're talking about now is me being at the hospital.
2: Right. Yeah. In the first... Yeah, in the first couple of weeks after the accident, and you know they didn't know what your prognosis was. You had,
0: and that was and that was when I was thirteen. 13.
2: You were thirteen. Okay. They were worried about your growth plates, and you had um, petechial hemorrhaging in your frontal lobe. So they had told me I needed to en- enroll you in an IEP when we got back. And
0: what's that IEP?
2: Um, that you were going to have to be in special ed, mm-hmm. and your dad and I decided we weren't going to do that. We were going to get you speech therapists and occupational you know, therapists, and we were going to treat you just like a kid, mm-hmm. and that we were going to expect you to heal and live a productive life.
0: And I was in a medically induced coma for about a week?
2: For about a week, um, because A, they had to keep the swelling down in your brain, um, because they were worried about having to drill what they call burr holes mm-hmm. to release the pressure, so they had to keep you very calm yeah
0: and when i came to (laughs) you already know what i'm gonna say right
2: i know know exactly what you're gonna
0: say when i came to and they had pulled the intubation tube Mm -hmm. out of my throat and i was able to finally talk to you and dad and we were all three chatting and then the nurse comes over to take my catheter out Mm -hmm. and um you know, your, your you, you, catheter. You, yeah, you were, you <laughs> were, you were polite. You turned around, or you know, averted your eyes, and and Dad was like, "You should keep it in." Told to the nurse <laughs> because it makes it look bigger.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, your father did say that. So
0: he he's always been good at breaking the ice in really tense situations.
2: Yes, potentially
0: yes. tragic, tense situations. Yeah.
2: Yes, I think that he was invaluable in those moments with mm-hmm. you. Yeah.
0: So kind of moving forward here to Christmas Eve 2014, and I don't even have this written down, but what I thought of is a connection between dad and him saying potentially inappropriate things in moments of like really high stress and kind of getting to the end of your story and we can kind of recount and go back and fill in some context like we did before with the car accident. But when you eventually came to, you know, after you were in a medically induced coma, Mm -hmm. I remember you calling me a smart ass. Smart ass, yeah. Right when you came to. Yeah,
2: because I couldn't, right. I couldn't, I couldn't like talk first, but I was very aware that I was in this room. Mm -hmm. And I could tell from where the voices were coming from, what side of the bed you guys were on and i was trying really hard to open my eyes and i was um, conscious enough <laughs> i could hear the conversation that was going on and you had said something i wish i could remember what it was
0: i feel like i have it written down somewhere possibly but yeah. i don't remember what it was
2: but it it was funny <laughs> but it was being you were being a smart ass uh-huh. and you had leaned over me and you were saying something to me And you said it, and I just remember saying, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I just remember saying, you're such a smart ass. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And this was how many days after you were admitted to the ICU?
2: That would have been... And that
0: was in 2014. Yeah. Christmas Eve.
2: Yeah, when you guys had that monkey in my room.
0: Monkey in your room?
2: Yeah, you guys brought that monkey in my room, and it was hopping around. When I was coming off a of Presidex. Oh
0: yeah, you thought there was a monkey. <laughs> yes, we were all confused.
2: <laughs> yeah, I kept asking you guys, "How did you get a monkey in here?" Um, that would have been um, like five days later because they put me in. Um, uh, they used hypothermic therapy on me for th- three days. That would have been seventy-two hours,
0: which seemed like witchcraft to us when yes. they when they mentioned it, and Colton my brother that we've been talking about or that we've mentioned a few times he works in the ER and so he has experience with these types of things and once he heard that he was like it's all over
2: yeah because I mean the recovery on something like that an out of hospital cardiac arrest um, unwitnessed mm-hmm. is about four percent yeah
0: it's it's crazy I remember without
2: cognitive impairment
0: I remember the doctor telling us the percentages after you eventually woke up throughout all this Um, because they tried to wake you up was it three times before
2: yeah I don't remember I wasn't awake
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true so I'm pretty sure it was three times before and you'd come to and your heart was just it was racing and so then they put you back under and they did it again and oh man it was just so nerve-wracking you know every time that they would do it you know we're gonna do it again it's like okay let's see if it Let's see if she comes to. And then you came to the third time and you were all there. It was a it, miracle. It really was the doctors. There were doctors in the ICU and the nurses that had been watching you. And they were all saying miracle. It yep. really was unbelievable. It was a it was a Christmas miracle.
2: It was. That's what they call me at, yeah. at work. They call me the Christmas miracle.
0: So let's fill in some context then.
2: Um, about the day it happened. Yeah. Um, it was Christmas Eve and um, I was home and I was working on, we were going to go to Aunt Darcy and Uncle Jay's that night mm-hmm. like we do every year, I have our big family Christmas Eve gathering. And I was making a salad and I had just finished making the um, salmon dip. Mm-hmm. And your dad came home early from work. I expected him a little bit later, but he had come tromping up the stairs and had come in and you know tried some of the salmon dip to see if it needed any more seasoning. and. He went in the living room to take off his boots, which he's supposed to do at the front door, but he hadn't. (laughs) Um, So I could hear him clump, 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 go into the kit or the living room and sit down in his chair. And I was standing by the um, the dishwasher, and I remember I had been drinking a bunch of water that day because I thought I must be really dehydrated because I kept getting dizzy Mm -hmm. during during the morning. Um, so I kept drinking all this water. And um, I remember looking down at the dishes and thinking I should close that door because I don't want to fall if there's something sharp in there. And so I remember I reached down and I remember popping it closed and then I went black. I blacked out. And then I have a vague memory of being on my hands and knees trying to crawl past the wet bar to get into the um, living room. And I knew I wasn't going to make it. And I knew if I fell face first on that travertine floor, I'd bust my teeth. Mm -hmm. So, I remember swooshing myself over to my back. And then that's all I remember until I woke up six days later in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I have a vague, vague, vague memory of sirens. And I have um, a pretty clear memory of being wheeled into the ER and the nurse kept like rubbing me, rubbing my sternum Mm -hmm. and, you know, asking me to show him a sign. She kept saying, show me a sign, show me a sign. Can you move your finger? Can you move? And I remember I just barely moved my left thumb and then all this activity happened around the bed and I just kept, I heard her say like three times she moved her thumb. I saw her move her thumb and then I don't remember anything. that was it. That was it. Yeah. I remember the monkey though. The monkey. When six I six days up later. Six days later. And I don't know where that's from, but it's super vivid in my memory. Well, you had
0: a long, pretty detailed dream that involved Lord of the Rings.
2: <gasps> I did. Yeah. And the Eagles. Yeah. And I believed that um I was stuck out there, like where Frodo and Sam Wisem, she got stuck. <laughs> And all the lava flow.
0: Yeah, is this in Mordor?
2: Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. It wasn't lava. It was cold. It was like an iceberg. Mm-hmm. And I kept wondering why um, no one was coming. Like because I wanted a blanket. I was super cold. But I remember, th- and it went on and on and on. I mean, this dream went on and on and on. I mean, and I was there alone. Just like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Just like the Lord of the Rings. But I remember knowing that. The eagles were coming Mm -hmm. and the eagles were going to come and get me and bring me to safety.
0: You know what else is really miraculous is that dad was supposed to be at work. Mm -hmm. And his foreman at that time said, you know, it's Christmas Eve, boys, just go home with your families. Mm -hmm. And he normally wouldn't have done that. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, here comes dad and he heard you. From the living room, mm-hmm. came in there and started giving you chest compressions. Well, Kiana called the EMT, right?
2: Right. Well, he he thought that, um, and we did a PSA, actually, that you can still find on YouTube, a public service announcement about cardiac arrest. Um, but he'd heard the thump. And when he came around the corner, because he said, I almost made it, like one more little crawl, and I would have. he would have seen my head. Mm-hmm in the living room um he said that he saw me on my back and that my eyes were all rolled up into my head and that i looked dead and it was super white
0: jeez that's so scary
2: and so he automatically started chest compressions and called for kiana to come and help him and mm-hmm. she called um she called 911
0: and here you are the miracle mom
2: yeah the robot zombie mom the robot zombie <clears throat> Because I have a, yeah, um, a pacemaker, or not a pacemaker, I have a a zapper in my chest in case my heart decides to be stupid again.
0: Is that the technical term, a A zapper? zapper.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I call it. That's why our our team for um, Alaska Heart is kickstart my heart.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So let's maybe move on to a different job of yours. Okay. We've talked about the traumatic stuff that I was actually scared to talk about, but I think we got through it. Yeah. So, you haven't always been a nurse, as we've kind of established already. Before I was born, you owned a gym on the east side of Anchorage.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. I loved it, too.
0: What's the story with you in the gym? Um, and what year was it?
2: Oh, my gosh. So, I bought the gym. Um, so, first I had a tanning salon over off of um, Muldoon before you, you head towards the Takatnu Area there, where that breakfast place is, on the left-hand side of the road, I had a tanning salon in there called Malibu Sun, and don't ask me why Malibu has sunshine and we're in Alaska, so I called it Malibu Sun. <laughs> Whatever, you know. I was only like 19 years old when I when I opened it, 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. I was pretty young. Um, I bought my first um, townhouse when I was 20 years old, and you know, like I said, I, I was always pretty driven to, you know, be successful at whatever I was doing. So I was working at EF Hutton and then um, Merrill Lynch. And at the same time in the evening, I ran the tanning salon. And so I had been involved with some bodybuilders who would come in and want me to sponsor them to let them tan at my salon for competitions. And so I had met the people who owned Gold's Gym Eastside at that time. And... Um, Her name was Cookie. She was super, super nice lady. Mm -hmm. And then her husband, who I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But he was the bodybuilder guy. But I dealt with her most of all. So I bought um, Gold's Gym Eastside, um, I want to say, in 1982.
0: I actually want to go back really quick to the tanning salon. And I remember, I feel like you recently, within the last couple of years, were telling me about... The hot tub room. Oh,
2: for heaven's <laughs> sakes. Yeah, we, well, <laughs> you know, the 80s, um, we, Alaska, ended up going into a pretty severe recession. And so by then I had um, I Malibu Sun, I had the Fitness Connect, well, I turned it into the Fitness Connection from Gold's Gym Eastside because I didn't want to pay the franchise fee for Gold's Gym. Mm-hmm. So I turned it into the Fitness Connection. Um, and at, in the Fitness Connection, I also had another tanning salon in there. So the one over the Malibu Sun over at the end of Muldoon, you know, started kind of floundering. I wasn't there. And, you know, places just don't operate the same if, the, if they're not owner operated, mm. you know. Um, So we decided, we as in me and some of my employees decided, you know, hot tubs were a big deal, you know, at that time in the 80s, you know, early mid 80s. Okay. And we decided, well, I'm gonna put a hot tub in there and I'll ha- be able to rent out it out for parties. And um it, it was really quite beautiful. So one side of the salon was this hot tub area that had a big sitting party area and then the hot tub and then it had um like you know the vase and stuff to put champagne and stuff in it. It was beautiful when mm-hmm. you went into it. And the other side just I just kept as as um Tanning salon, the tanning beds. Your dad, I'm sure, told you what he called it. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I'm sure I'll remember once you say it. So, of course, you know, when I first met your dad, I still had the Malibu Sun and the fitness connection. And he went over to do some work for me over at Malibu Sun. What kind of work? It was uh, electrical work because that's what he, you know, he is. He's an electrician in, in his real life. And so he started calling it tub and bone. (laughs) (laughs)
0: because people were having sex in the
2: yeah and i didn't want to know that i didn't you know i felt it was super rude but to this day that's what he remembers it as
0: tub and bone tub and bone but the real name was it
2: was malibu sun malibu sun yeah and there was just a jacuzzi area in there you could have a party (laughs) <laughs> so, and and actually it worked out super well. I did, you know, during the day there were people coming into tan and in the evening I, that room was booked most of the time.
0: So why did you stop doing the tanning thing?
2: Well, I sold that one because it was too much for me to have a day job and both those locations. I, I just couldn't do it. And even though it, it was fun being a business owner, and I enjoyed the gym more than I enjoyed the tanning salon. Mm-hmm. But but I really did want to get more into my stock, um, my brokerage career. So I, I didn't want to be so pulled in all those directions. Mm-hmm. So um, I sold Malibu Sun, didn't make a bunch of money. I just got out from underneath that and um, just stuck with the fitness connection after that.
0: So what kinds of things did you see? At the gym, I remember hearing stories about how you had to clean up the men's room at night and there'd be steroid needles in there.
2: Oh, yeah. Steroid needles, empty condoms. I don't know what they're doing. Did you just
0: say condoms?
2: Yeah. (laughs) 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 What are they called? A condom? Okay, condoms. (laughs) You slapped an
1: E on there.
2: I've always called them condoms. Oh my god, <laughs> condom, condom. It just seems so finite, condom. <laughs> All
1: right.
2: <laughs> and then there was this guy. This your dad would probably tell this story a whole lot more funny than I would. But I always had to be careful about when I went into the men's room, even after closing, because some guys would like you know still be in there. And there was this one guy that they called the postman, and he <laughs> was always laying there butt ass naked. Why'd they call him the postman? Because he was a postman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, he just worked at the post office? He worked at the post office and he loved laying there. He'd be on the bench that you couldn't miss him when you first walked in and you came around the corner. He'd always be laying right there with all his glory.
0: Everything that God gave him.
2: Yeah. And I think he did it on purpose.
0: You know, I don't know. Well, you probably don't have too much experience with male locker rooms, but that's a thing. You always have... You know,
2: you're exhibitionists. You
0: do. Definitely. Ugh.
2: Yeah, that was pretty funny. But yeah, it's gross. It was gross having to go in there and scrub. And, you know, I wasn't making enough money to be able to hire somebody, which I guess, you know, some people would have done that. Mm-hmm. But I did a lot of um, trade outs. And that's how I even met your dad as I did a trade out for him to do the upkeep on the equipment in the gym.
0: Mm-hmm. So you got rid of the gym mm-hmm. to pursue being a stockbroker.
2: Um, well, to focus on that, but I also had, um, I closed the gym the same month that you were born.
0: January 1988.
2: Yeah. I decided I that we were going to close it and just liquidate it. It wasn't making enough money. And I mean, we tried very, very hard. But again, that time in Alaska was not good financially at all.
0: So then in 1989 is when Dad and Jay started Borderline. Yes. And so kind of skipping over your stockbroking job, because we've already talked about that. Mm -hmm. After you left Wedbush, your next job was like doing the books for Dad's snowboard and skateboard shop Borderline, right?
2: Short period of time. I was in school. Yeah, <laughs> I was in school at that point, so I was trying not to have to work a job. Job. Okay. So I didn't. I didn't work a job. Job. Um, for about eight months, nine months, um, and then I started working in the NICU as an extern.
0: So something that I don't think a lot of people know about you is that you were the backbone of borderline whenever dad was in trouble or the business was in trouble you would always come to the rescue
2: that's a nice way of putting it
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to be nice here
2: that's a super super nice way of putting it yeah
0: i'm not asking you to put dad on blast here but what kind of stuff did you have to run damage control on
2: oh sweet baby jesus (laughs) um It, you know, there were some great things about borderline, and then there were some really not great things about borderline. Um, I would say that a big piece of it was trying to keep the finances going. and and much of that entailed just keeping enough inventory in the shops and keeping the bills paid even during periods of time that borderline wasn't making dog poop for money okay so you know there there was the business side of things that were always to me it was always um very busy and you know your dad's always traveled a lot so much of you guys growing up your you know your lives you were always um, you traveled a lot with your dad, mm-hmm. and you spent a lot of time on um, at Alieska and Hilltop and all the you know resorts here in in town. Um, but Colton and Kiana ended up you know basically living in my car. Yeah, and um, you had a TV. I plugged had a, in. I did. I had a TV for them, and they you know literally from the time I got off work at. Um, at that time wedbush I'd get off work go pick up the kids have to make it out to UPS before it closed and pick up inventory rush back we'd had we had two locations there but you know it was always like this thing you had to get the inventory out you know and priced and everything as quick as possible because people wanted to buy it mm-hmm. and you really wanted to be the first person in town to have it on your shelves or else they'll go buy it for somewhere you know somewhere else mm-hmm. you know if that's one thing you know your dad was always so amazing about providing for the youth here and setting up, you know, skate competitions and um, sponsorships and snowboard competitions and all that awesome stuff that he did. And you would think that there would be great loyalty for that, and I think that there is a a portion of the population that that were very loyal, mm-hmm. but people don't care. They just want it for the cheapest that they can get it. And they could, you know, usually give a crap about the local businesses. And uh, unfortunately, that's true. And
0: I think that it's one of those things that people, at least I've seen people realize in hindsight, right? So once those things are gone, once there's no borderline camp, once there's no Indo Skate Park, once there's no, you know, borderline competition series, and you give them like... Three months, four months, one season, two seasons, you know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, it's, it's not there anymore." Yeah, and then they really start missing it, and they're, and I, I'm not sure if, because I'm not, I don't want to come off bad mouthing because I've really meditated on all of this, and I find myself buying stuff from Amazon as well, mm-hmm. you know, because oh hey, it's cheaper here, and I don't have to go into you know a mall because I hate going into malls anyway, right. or you know, there's there's just there's pros and cons to both. But I think that it's really difficult for me to uh, not harbor animosity just at this nebulous, you know, person that I've probably created in, in my mind. This, mm-hmm. you know, this person or this group of people don't really exist, but they're the people that didn't support something that was there for them. If that makes any sense, and, and, and that somebody, and now it's gone, and there are people that are that are really trying to bring it back, but. I think it's very difficult to bring that something like that back.
2: you know the thing is is there there's there's a lot of things about your dad's personality we could talk about, but the thing is is he he is a magician with things like that mm-hmm. he He knows how to identify something that's going to be big, and he he knows how to target that and and formulate a plan around it with so much. Electricity and so much excitement that people want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. There's a magnetism to that, and 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 I I do see that, and I know that's what happened with borderline. He he was borderline, mm-hmm. and people wanted to be involved in all of this activity and space that he created, and he created it for the people. In this community, mm-hmm. it wasn't about him at all.
0: It was tailor made for Alaska,
2: and he couldn't have got it more perfect. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, it, it was amazing to watch that unfold. You know, from nineteen eighty nine, you know, through two thousand and seven, when we closed the last shop, it was, it was amazing to see the talent that mm-hmm. he, the just the natural talent he had to make that kind of thing happen. Um that being said, you know, he was you have to be so focused when you're doing something like this in a business, so focused and I think that I've seen you do this with crude and with your magazines. That is your um uh, that's that's what your destiny is in that moment and that's the only thing that you focus on. I think you got that from your father. Mm-hmm. You watched him do this year after year and decade after decade. And no one can take that away from him or you. What happens, though, is there is a debris field that that accumulates in the pathway of that happening. In if what that way? Makes sense. You know, if you're if you're so focused on trying to create the success of something, um, and and you have to be, the goal is so singly related to that success, that you miss a lot of what's happening on the peripheral. So during that time, you know, as a family, and I'm sure, you know, you've talked about this before, as a family, this family um, completely Existed around borderline. Mm-hmm. Everything was about borderline. It was when the inventory was coming in. Did it turn over? Uh, doing inventory at the end of the year. You know, paying the rent. Paying the rent for the shops had to come before paying your mortgage payment because that had to stay open. Mm-hmm. And so there were plenty of times that you know my paychecks, after paycheck after paycheck of from what Wedbush. I was earning from Wedbush, yeah. had to go to buy inventory. Because we had to have that inventory to keep the doors open. And then I would be working twice as hard at the at my job because then I've got to make enough money to to make sure that I make up for that for our personal bills. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? And I, I don't I don't think there was a lot of um and nobody would think about that. You know what I mean? Um, but that's what it was for me with borderline. It was trying to balance having a normal family. And having this huge behemoth of a, not just a business, but of a a legend. I, I don't know what you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But that so many people were involved with, but what was holding it up was so tenuous.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Day by day by day. And, and it was everything we could do to just keep it moving. Because him... Doing all of those, um, sponsoring all those things, sponsoring all those people, bringing them down, you know, to go to all of these competitions and going on the road trips with the with the motorhome. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to pay for that. Yeah. And the business didn't have the money, especially in the summertime. So, you know, I look at it and I think that that, you know, that was an interesting time and it was full of, you know, fun and excitement. And I love that, you know, the kids got that opportunity because I don't think it would have happened otherwise, many of those people. And I admire your dad for all those things that he did. But there was a completely different side to that entire period of time.
0: For sure, yeah. Yeah, I've I've talked to people about it before that experienced it from the outside looking in. And their perception of what it's like on the inside was completely fabricated in their own head. They, they, they didn't know that we were, you know, going into Diamond Center and tagging Burton stuff for the next season for, I mean, all night.
2: All night. Yeah. And all the kids, all you guys, regardless of how old you were. Kiana, yeah. her first stop after she was born was the shop, really? yeah, she didn't go to grandma's first. she went to the shop huh. because there was stuff that had to be done. So your family always takes a back seat when you have a business like that. and and it's not just us that that's how you create a successful business. A business owns you, you don't own that business. Mm-hmm. and if you are not if you are not taking care of it and loving it and giving it literally everything you have every minute of the day, that business will not survive.
0: So you're happy to be done with it?
2: Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I know there was a lot of people that weren't happy about it, but I was like, thank the good Lord.
0: At any point, were you a little frightened when I was doing Crude and now I have kind of this uh, this uh, manageable routine with the podcast and I'm able to, but with the magazine, it was each issue was just a monster.
2: You know, the thing is, Cody, is you are a thinker. And I think that you're very balanced. So I, I never saw you get completely consumed, even though I, I say that while I say that, I also remember there were a couple of the issues that I think um that you were so committed to getting out, you that's all you were doing mm-hmm. from the time you woke up in the morning to the time you went to bed. That's all you focused on. And I, I could see that you have that tendency to become so obsessed with your project that nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. I could see the tendency was there, but then the next time we would talk, it was like you have this balance in your personality that brings you back to, you know what, that's my job. That's what I'm doing to take care of my family. My family is what's important. Well,
0: and I think that Carrie plays a huge portion of that. You know, she would call me out like she does (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, when I would be too manic, when I would wake up in the middle of the night and she noticed I wasn't next to her and she'd go into the office and I'm sitting there at... Two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, working on the issue, editing an article. And she's like, you need to come to bed. I'm like, I can't. My heart's racing. I just, I woke up, you know, I'm up.
2: But the thing is, is you would listen to Carrie. Yeah. And believe me, your dad and I had plenty of conversations. And I'm sure you remember as a child, some very loud conversations that he and (laughs) I would have because I wouldn't back down. Yeah. Because... He had to listen to somebody, or at least somebody tried to had had to try to make him listen. Mm-hmm. So there there is a big difference between somebody coming to you and saying, Cody, look at what you're doing. You know, you need to take a break here. You gotta calm down. And if your heart hearts racing when you're sleeping because you're so stressed out about this issue, mm-hmm. there's a problem with this. This isn't healthy. Yeah. And and you listened. You listened when your wife came and told you that.
0: Well, I think it took A number of times, as I'm sure she would attest to, but I eventually did.
2: Yeah, I listened. Yeah. And I'm not saying that your dad never listened, but his focus was always about the success of what he was doing with the business. That was always, always, always the focus.
0: Something that I realized doing crude and then having to explain it for Writing for a grant or for whatever reason, I have to explain what it is, is for so long, it just existed in my head. And Mm -hmm. these things that I was doing, whether it was a party or whether it was an issue, were more successful than I ever thought they would be. And the success or like the formula for success only really existed in my head. And I wonder if dad is similar in that way. That he's doing the thing and he's he's thought about it. He's meditated on. Okay, I need to the snowboard camp for example mm-hmm. and the skateboard camp up in Girdwood when he first did that. I wonder if he's like, okay, I'm just gonna do this and you know maybe there wasn't insurance the first year or whatever. <laughs> I, I'm making that up, but
2: there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, remember when you said what are some of the things that I was always trying to scramble about insurance? There we are. That was one one of those holy shit. Well,
0: actually, um, one of the things that he told me at, at a certain point when I was like, I'm going to do a skateboard competition. And nowadays you, you have to have insurance, right? Like yeah, you're not you going to get, get away with it no. And, uh, he was just like, don't do it. Don't yeah. get insurance. And I remember it was like such a weird epiphany for me. I'm like, don't get insurance. Wow. That's, <laughs>
2: that's not a bad idea. <laughs> but you've got to remember his was always this. Well, he thinks he's smarter than everybody else. But then that's why I mean he's gotten fined how many times? Totally. On so many freaking different things. And who is the person going back to negotiate? Well, yes, you caught him. Yes, I know these are the charges. Okay, can we negotiate this? What if we do this? We'll agree to this. Mm-hmm. So, it's one thing if you're the one who's who's, you know, creating issues. Um, and if you're the one having to clean up your messes, it's a completely different issue if somebody else is having to walk around behind you and clean up your messes. Mm-hmm.
0: And I want to get back to those things just existing in his head, right? Until he had to explain it. Or maybe you were the one that were able that was able to kind of articulate exactly, you know, the everything that was happening and, you know, the mechanisms behind all of it, rather than it just existing in his head, you know?
2: You know, that's. I think that's kind of an interesting thought. Uh, um, I think you're right that he he is he's the plan guy. He is the one that comes up with, you know, some amazing ideas. Uh, and my brain doesn't work that way. I'm a very linear thinker. I remember numbers. <laughs> I do. I remember bank numbers. I remember everybody's social security numbers. You know what I mean? I yeah. can remember a phone number from, you know, thirty years ago. Um, I, I'm not that kind of a creative thinker. Okay, and I think that's why he and I do make such a good pair. Mm-hmm. He does see things, and and can he's a visionary. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is why every business that he has been involved with has been remarkably successful
0: and emulated. You know, I think that that's one thing that I have always taken from Dad is. If I have an idea, I'm going to play it real close to the chest. Yeah. Because I have had ideas and maybe I didn't take heed to dad telling me it's like, yeah, don't put that idea out there. Nope. You know, hold on to that. Somebody and, will steal it. Yeah, somebody will steal it. And I have. I, yeah, I put it out there and I, you know, explain my mechanisms of how I did it and everything. And then next thing I know, poof, somebody else is doing it. Yeah. And I think that... uh, Maybe that's one benefit of keeping it in your head, you know. Yeah. Nobody knows how to do it.
2: Well, you know how earlier we were talking about flow state. About oh, before the you, podcast, yeah, before yeah. the podcast, we were talking about flow state. I, I think your dad kind of lives in a flow state. Okay, and and I think because of that, he he comes off as being a little bit eccentric sometimes. And then,
0: <laughs> I, yeah, he no, does. he's definitely eccentric. Yeah,
2: but he has a way of. Seeing things and expressing things, and you know, if he makes up his mind about something, he just does it,
0: and he's thought of the way all the way through.
2: Oh, and yeah, he he knows exactly what he's doing, mm-hmm. and I got to tell you, I've always admired that because I am not that person. I have to draw things out and make lists, and I have to be able to check things off, and I mean, ridiculous. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, But, I mean, even what he did with Borderline and The Camp and King of the Hill and, you know, the different shops and now even with Alaska Surf and Bear Glacier Boards, I I just think, how can that much creativity be in one human being?
0: Mm -hmm. And those two businesses are his current venture. Alaska Surf Adventure is his... Surfing, and even hunting, through, and fishing charter out of Seward.
2: Even out, even through all of all of this COVID stuff, he had a great year. That's great, and I mean that's amazing.
0: So I have a story, okay, that I want you to tell. Oh, I'll help you start it. Okay, okay. So I remember a story about the time that you had to drive to Girdwood during borderline summer camp one year, <laughs> and you were speeding, and a cop tried to pull you over, <laughs> but you didn't want to be late, to drop all, I think it was food, off at the day lodge? Yeah. So you just put your arm out the window and waved your hand, indicating that the cop follow you if he really wanted to give you a ticket. I did. So you remember that?
2: Yes. You kids were in the car.
0: I wasn't in the car.
2: I. Are you sure you weren't in the car?
0: I was at the day lodge, and then...
2: <gasps> oh, you were at the... Okay, so this is the deal, okay? <laughs> I was super pissed off that day <laughs> because I got a call from the sandwich girls telling me that they couldn't find your dad and they didn't have any food for the, for the lunches for th- the campers. Okay. 200 freaking campers, no lunches. Mm-hmm. I'm at work. Cause that's what I do. I work a real job. <laughs> so I have to, um, I have to tell my boss, I have to leave. I go pick up your brother. Your sister wasn't around yet. There was somebody with him. I remember there were two kids in the back of the car at the time. I thought it was you, but maybe you would have been at camp. So I had to rush over to Costco, get a whole pallet full of freaking bread and stuff, chips, Mm -hmm. candy bars, juice boxes, and do it quickly, right? Well, I'm, you know, dragging these kids along with me. I, you know, get enough for like three days worth. And at the same time, I'm really worried about where the hell your father is, mm-hmm. who's supposed to be up at this camp, you know, running this freaking camp. Um, and so I get everything and I'm trying to rush to get up there because I needed to be there like by ten o'clock or ten thirty so we can make the sandwiches and the lunches for the campers. Mm-hmm. And so I'm speeding. I know I'm speeding. I go to pass a stupid motorhome. Do you remember
0: how fast we were going?
2: Oh, probably like 90. Okay. As I was just hitting, you know, hitting into Potter. Okay. But there wasn't a lot of traffic at the time because it's, you know, in the morning on a weekday. So I was, I mean, I was going pretty fast and I was passing the motorhome that was only going like 30. And I didn't pass one. I passed like three of them. In a row? Yeah. But nobody was coming. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I hear these lights behind me. And I kind of let him come up next to me. And I point in the car. And I said, "If I yell at him, if you want to give me that ticket, follow me.
0: Wait, so he's side by side with you?
2: Yeah. And he's got his window open? A little bit further back, yeah. And he's yell- He's pointing at me to So you're going
0: over. 90. Yeah. And you're yelling at a cop to follow you to give you a yeah, ticket. Yeah, and he sees
2: I've got kids in the back car of the car. So yeah, I drive all the way to Girdwood. He's behind me. <laughs> I thought for sure he was going to arrest me right there. And at the time, I didn't fucking care. <laughs> I was so annoyed at the whole situation. And he walks up and he goes, ma'am, That was very, um, that was an unusual thing. You know, I could have set up a whatever and stopped you. And I said, you could have. And I really appreciate that you didn't. I said, I don't know where my husband is. He's supposed to be running this camp. And if I would have stopped and made blah, 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 I wouldn't have been here on time. I thank you so much for just coming along. And I said, if you want to write that ticket, I don't have a lot of time.
0: (laughs) Do you remember how much the ticket was? He didn't
2: give me a ticket. He didn't give you a ticket? No. Colton was hanging on my leg looking at me like, (gasps) yeah.
0: That is wild. He
2: did not give me a ticket.
0: And all of the lunch materials were delivered.
2: Yeah. And so I go looking for your dad because by now I'm like, where is he? And I walk into the day lodge and I hear this guttural snoring that I recognize as your father's. And he is asleep under... Which is super gross. He's asleep under that bench when you first walked in where all the kids left their their wet boots and stuff. Okay. He was asleep under that bench. Yeah. (laughs) I kicked him. You kicked him? Where'd you kick him? In his leg.
0: I kicked him (laughs) and told him to get up. Yeah. Okay. So, I have one more question for you. Okay. I remember a while back, you told me that for the longest time, you were... Known and referred to as Scott Liska's wife, <laughs> and that it wasn't until later when you had created your own lane separate from him that you felt like an individual. Do you remember when that was?
2: I do. You mean, when I started feeling like an individual? yeah um I do um, you know, for so many years, like I said, everything in the family revolved around borderline and yeah, I mean, I was his wife, and I was the person who did all the stuff in the background that most people have no idea, even you know, went on to keep all of that stuff running. Um, and when I went back to school, um, and um, I earned my first nursing degree, I have five degrees now, mm-hmm. of which my latest one is I hold a doctorate in nursing, and that is a terminal degree; it's the highest re- degree you can earn just going through that process. But I would say the very first time that I really felt like I was my own individual is when I got my job at the newborn intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. And um, I quickly, I loved it. And I was good at it. And um, I, you know, first became a nurse there, uh, or first I was an extern there. And then I became a nurse. And then I became a charge nurse. And then I started, um, I was a transport nurse. And there's something about knowing that you can save a life and that when I would walk into, especially like into a, um, a transport situation with my practitioner, the nurse practitioners are the ones that go out on transport for the NICU. They're the ones who do all of the procedures, the resuscitations, the admissions. There is something sacred about stepping into that place when you know that there is this crisis that if you are, if you are not there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: that baby would not have made it. That experience, slowly over that time, I realized I am really good at this. And I love this. I love, love, love being a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten so much recognition from the other nurses that I work with in situations that um, have been tough, difficult resuscitations that we've brought the kid back, the feeling of doing something like that, I I can't even explain it. It, it It is a gift from God to be welcomed into those sacred moments and given a skill that you can do that. And all I can say is I would never do anything else. I wish I had discovered it earlier. I love being a nurse.
0: If you were to have discovered it earlier, do you think that you would have appreciated it as much as you do? Or is it one of those things where you could only be that person when you became that person?
2: That's such a good question. Um, Do you know, I don't believe that I would have been ready to walk that path any sooner than I did, but once I started down that path, I knew exactly where to go mm-hmm. and I knew I was exactly where I was supposed to be, and you know even to this point, at this point, you know, I work as the clinical nurse specialist and a neonatal nurse practitioner in the unit um I really can't imagine doing anything else. I love my clinical days and I love my research days. I love the days that I lead the um, shared governance groups in my unit for quality improvement. There is so much depth that can be found in doing something like that. I had absolutely no idea until I did it.
0: Do you remember the first successful like medical thing that you did that that gave you that confidence and made you realize like oh I can do this
2: well I'll, I can tell you the thing that stands out in my mind when I was on my um I was on level three which is the it was as a nurse and um there were a set of micro that came in um that were like 22 23 weeks those are very tiny uh, the little girl was three hundred and eighty three grams under a pound, and the little boy was i want to say four hundred and fifty grams still under a pound, but just barely and um I was the admin nurse for them, and the little boy came through first, and we got him stabilized and you know that tiny takes a lot of work to stabilize them get them into their you know little condos their double white isolates and get the humidity going and give them whatever support they needed but the little girl was super tiny and the laryngoscope that they were trying to use to intubate her wasn't working it was too big for her little tiny mouth and one of the practi- the, the doctor called for one of the practitioners to come to the bedside and she came to the bedside and i was i had the baby positioned for her and she intubated that baby with her finger. She didn't use a laryngoscope because they were too large. And all there was all these people gathered around the bed. You had the x-ray tech, you had the nurses, the charge, you had all of the support around the bed. And the practitioner put her finger in that baby's mouth and slid that teeny tiny ET tube in. And as soon as we saw chest rise, because her SATs were down into the single digits She was dying. She was dying. She was purple. She wasn't going to make it. And as soon as that tube went in and they started giving her little teeny, 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 tiny breaths, she pinked up. Her heart rate went up. Her sats went up. And we knew at least for today, at least in that moment, she had a chance. And working with little tiny ones like that. And not just the micro preemies, even though they are a special little population that that you really have to work very hard at, at um, understanding how to care for them. They aren't just little people. Their lungs work differently. Their kidneys work differently. Their little tummies work differently. Having the specialty to be able to take that little teeny tiny person and grow them until they're stable enough to breathe on their own. And at some point, hopefully... To walk them out of that unit and discharge them to their parents is is incredible. Mm-hmm. But I remember that instant when that happened, I thought, I'm going to do this forever. That's amazing. That's great. It was.
0: Well, that's all my questions, Mom. Okay, Cody. Did you have fun?
2: I did have fun. I worry about saying the wrong thing, and I'm sorry I cussed.
0: I think cussing is great.
2: Okay, me too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I love you.
2: I love you too, so very much.
0: You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.